Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. Welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman with Jamila Resby. My name is Astrid and this week we are all about comfort. You are about to hear an interview between Jamila and Helen Go. Helen Go is a pastry chef extraordinaire. She began her career in Melbourne and now finds herself living in London. Helen is, of course, the brilliant mind behind Yotta Motolinghi's book of desserts, Sweet. I hope you enjoy. Helen, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. It is such a thrill to have you here with us. How are you doing in this new weird and not so wonderful world that we're all living in. Oh gosh. Well, thanks so much for having me for a start. I'm speaking to you in not so sunny Cornwall. So in UK, it's kind of a bit of an ambiguous situation. Some people are still very much in lockdown mode or not, not lockdown mode, but sort of very trepidatious about going out. And other people are thinking it's summer, you know, we're free at last. And so everyone's kind of interpreting it how they like, which is slightly scary. And I'm, we're kind of trying to keep safe in terms of a staycation, sort of keeping within our sort of family bubble, but doing it, having a little break away from home anyway. So we're doing fine. I really can't complain. (laughs) but feeling very, very much for our family and friends in Melbourne. Yeah, thank you. Tell me about what you're like when you're on, I suppose the staycation is a holiday, what you're like when you're on holiday with food. You know what's really interesting? Normally it does revolve around food. I mean, much to my husband's and even my son's now sort of complain and they even say it's not all about the food, mum. Normally it is. And, you know, when I go to a new town, even, you know, in Wales, for example, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but I'm like, oh, I'm going to have my Welsh lamb. Where are the Welsh cakes? You know, I've got to beeline for a bakery to look for those things. But this time, actually, it feels quite different. And I think it's a direct result of having been in that lockdown and isolation and the children without their peers, without their friends around for so long that this time... I don't even think I've made a conscious effort to say it's not about the food, but it just feels so joyous to be outdoors, kind of with friends. I mean, we stayed in separate cottages on the same estate with friends in Wales. And I think it was just so, you were so just so appreciative of that sort of semi-contact and being outdoors that the food became secondary. And that was probably a bit of relief for everybody. I mean, it didn't last long. There were times when I was sort of itching to go to a market, even a supermarket. So I think, yeah, the context has been different and it has given me a a kind of appreciation of the context of the food rather than the food. Is it cooked? Is it well cooked? Everybody has to be ready rather than let's just enjoy ourselves. And when the food is ready, it's ready. So it took on a secondary role. So food and cooking clearly play an enormous comforting role in your life as well as being your work. Can you tell us how you first fell in love with cooking? How did you realise you were good? How old were you? Gosh, I think I'm still trying to to realise if I am good. (laughs) Well, I, you know, we grew up, I mean, so migrating to Australia in the late 70s, I think food was our comfort. I mean, we just, so much was unknown 
about our new country. And, you know, my mother didn't speak English. I spoke a kind of broken English. We communicated in sort of Bahasa, Malaysia, Hokkien, a kind of pidgin. And food was just a very natural point of connection for all of us, you know, whether, you know, we'll be at school during the day and then just the the gathering around the food was not just the nurturing in terms of the food itself, but also I think a kind of decompression, a place to decompress over food. And I think it was comfort in a very fundamental sense for us at the time, not in terms of comfort eating or whether you're just feeling emotionally stressed that you needed it, but I think we genuinely needed it to kind of connect back with each other after the stress of a day of trying to fit in to our new home. So I think probably it started from there. And I think also because it gave my mother so much joy and that was really at that point, her only language. You know, we were all desperate to be Australians, desperate to sound like little Aussies and she didn't speak English and and food literally was the way she connected back with us at the end, you know, at the end of the day. I suspect that's the case for so many women who move countries in their adult life. I remember my grandmother being absolutely the same, coming from India, and her language was cooking for us because we didn't have many common words. We had such basic language in common, and she used to show her love with these enormous Indian banquets. That was how you showed love. Yes, exactly. Tell us when you started to realise that cooking was going to be your work and a much bigger part of your life than it is for most of us. You know, it was, it's so weird because I truthfully am the worst cook in the family. I mean, there are five children. I find that Um, hard to believe. Well, it is. I mean, if my sister's listening, they will listen at some point. They will be laughing at the truth of this. I, I mean, I really fell into it in some point, In, in some sense, I fell into it. And in another, I think I was just so, what's the word, naive and so ignorant about what it means to be a good cook. I just loved it and I thought that was enough. And really, I did well, guided by the, my love of it. But actually, had I known now what it what it means to be sort of cooking professionally, I just don't think I would have had the goal to sort of get into it. But anyway, I, I, I went to university, did the psych major and decided to do some sort of pharmaceutical work, which was a kind of a cushy job for a 21-year-old, but then it didn't really well, it didn't really speak to me. I was just sort of, oh, company car, company phone. It was a bit buzzy for a little while, but then I very, very quickly realised it wasn't for me. And at the point, at the time that I was doing that job, part of the job was to talk about new drugs that we had to a group of doctors. And I kind of found that it was much easier to talk to them if you provided food. So I used to gather them for meetings and then get them catered for like platters of sushi or even sandwiches or something. And I actually found that I spend more time planning the catering than my (laughs) actual meetings, (laughs) than sort of swatting on the drugs that I needed to tell them about. And I think the focus just kind of gradually changed. And then one day I just was picking up my catering for one of my meetings and I said, you don't have any jobs going here, do you? And they said, well, we have a waitressing job. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> so, wow. 
you know, I think I finished work on the Friday that day, had the sort of office meeting and then, you know, went off to this, it was called Black Tie Catering in Richmond. And I turned up and the party was in somewhere fairly grand in um, Domain Road, I remember, overlooking the beautiful botanical gardens. And uh, honestly, <laughs> I mean, I I dropped things. The the host, you know, very posh host was coming to help me, to give me a, an idea on how to carry the drinks tray. It was just mortifying. But somehow that didn't even stop me. <laughs> And my partner at the time, who was a journalist at the age, actually, he was made redundant. And he said, oh, you know, we've got a, you know, I've got a bit of money. What would you do if you had a bit of money? And I said, I'd open a cafe. And unfortunately for him, I was dead set on this idea that, you know, we could change our lives. And change we did because from no experience whatsoever, we opened a tiny little cafe. And I think for the first 10 days we sat there thinking, oh my gosh, what have we done? And then suddenly something clicked. It just happened. People were coming in and then they came back. And and so I just have never, I've not stopped since then. I mean, we worked 17 hour days and I was so terribly insecure and just thought, I don't, it, we've, this has just got to work. You know, whatever it takes, it's got to work. And it was a great little business. And we had, I was lucky enough that Stephanie's, the restaurant at the time was down the road and there the, the chefs used to come, you know, to have their staff lunches. And Dure Dara, who was one of the partners there, she came. And after that, when we closed, she came to me and he, she said, you stick with me. I mean, she was a formidable woman. I mean, I was terrified of her. But I also trusted that she, that I just had to follow her. I mean, I had no choice, really. She said, you just stick with me. She was at the time president of the Restaurant and Catering Association in Victoria. And a very... I mean, she's actually, I got a text from her last week. I've just kind of reconnected with her. She was a very strong, formidable woman and somebody who also very spiritual and somehow, you know, she, she didn't feel she needed to explain anything. She just said, I've got a few ideas for you. You just come to my house at four o'clock or meet me here. And you just, I just did it. And I have to say that was a lot of luck with her. And a bit of, but I mean, she, I guess, saw something in me that she thought was sort of worth investing in or nurturing. And she was really my mentor. She was from, she was from Malaysia of Indian descent. And she felt, I guess, a deep connection, you know, with me, even though we were both sort of trying to be little Aussies in the world. But I think at that time, we also had that connection that we were, other in some ways and that she wanted to look after me. It takes enormous hard work and dedication, but also nerve, right? You have to hold your nerve to start a new business. And I imagine yes. the same kind of nerve is required to write a cookbook and put something into the world that says, I'm going to teach all of you how to cook like me. Can you tell me what that felt like and what that process of creation was like? I mean, in a way, you have to suspend your feeling and thinking about it because I think if you think too too much, you think, I can't do it. You know, I just I just can't do it. And I, I think I must have had those moments and gone to your tum and said, I can't do it. In fact, I, I know I did. And he'd just say, you can, or 
shut up or, you know, I mean, even the, the way sweet came about, you know, we ate out, we eat out, well, not so much now because of the children and he's very busy and we're both very busy. But at the time, I think we ate out a lot and we kind of fantasize and think about all sorts of things. And, and I think it might've been just a sort of passing comment, hey, we should do a book one day. And then literally one day he did come to me and say, well, look, here's the gap and it's time. We're doing our book. And I think I was just sort of wide-eyed thinking, are you serious? Really? And he was just, yeah. And he's just this person who's able to hold the big picture as well as be very grounded. He's just got this gift of being able to sort of take one, you know, one recipe at a time, one tasting at a time and hold that big picture. Whereas I freaked out if I saw the big picture or felt the big picture or else was so in the minutiae and the nitty gritty that I couldn't see the big picture. So I oscillated between the two and he kind of was the holder of these two states. I think he, he had that, he was able to have that goal and yet kind of be very present with me as we cooked and tested and tasted day to day. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Because as the consumer of the cookbook, it arrives in your house and you start doing what you're told, right? You're following instructions. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experimentation process is like before you come up with the result, with the recipes that you want yes. to include? I mean, how many times do you make something? Well, as many times as it takes. Although I do have a bit of a kind of motto that three strikes and you're out. If I really have to wrestle with something, I mean, I feel I'm very sensitive to this concept of flow. And I think from my psych background, this state when you are completely immersed in something, so you lose track of time. And I think one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me was I used to work at the Ottolenghi Bakery with a group of people. And one day I looked up and this manager of the bakery was sort of looking directly at me. And I said, oh, what, what, you're looking at me strangely. And he said, the thing about you is that you don't seem to know what else is going on because you're so focused on your work. It's like poetry. I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, I have been immersed in this, but I didn't see it as a positive thing. I thought of it as a very annoying and selfish and slightly unconscious process. But the way he said it, it made me think, gosh, yes, that's a real gift to be able to have something, something that you feel so immersed in. And I think that concept of flow, which has actually become more difficult for me now since having had children, I think that's the point where I feel very creative when I enter that zone. The first process of entering that zone, when I decide, okay, I need to do some work now, it actually takes quite a while for me to get into it. And I have to sort of, you know, there's a, it's kind of argy-bargy in the beginning. You know, what, what am I trying to do? What am I trying to get at? Maybe you're looking at a recipe that hasn't quite come together, but it's being able to stick with that. And the flow does come, but it does take a while. And somehow with the children, I'm not saying it as blaming them, but just more the context of my life is different and has shifted a bit. But it's just harder to get into that process of flow because I just don't simply don't have that time of 
playing with something and, and, you know, it's like this Rubik's cube. You have to just kind of wrestle with it a little bit before you get into it. It's hard to maintain your flow when there's someone arriving asking you to fix a piece of Lego or a transformer or they're hungry. You you lose your flow when that happens. Exactly. Or just that you've got in mind that you've got to collect them from football or chess club or whatever. I wanted to ask about what you cook for comfort. When you're seeking Mm -hmm. comfort for yourself and the people around you, what do you like to cook? And is what you like to cook different from what you like to eat for comfort? Even though I'm fairly broad in my knowledge about food, I mean, I I wouldn't say I'm well-traveled, but I know a lot about different cuisines. But if I was to cook for me for comfort, it does, yes, I would say it does gravitate to sort of food I ate in Malaysia growing up. And even though I might say, oh gosh, you know, lasagna is comfort food. It's soft, it's squidgy, it's cheesy, it's hot. I still, if I was going to cook something for myself, it would be boiled rice with an egg with chili sambal. It would be that kind of thing. So I'm very conscious that not everybody wants to eat that. So yes, when I'm thinking of cooking for comfort, I think more along cheesy gratins than hot sambals. And I think what's interesting is this notion of sort of cross-cultural ideas about comfort. And in fact, I'll let you in on something. After we did Sweet, your time and I thought, okay, we're going to work on another book. We sort of toyed with the idea of a second Sweet book. And then I said, let's just do Food We Love. And he said, yes, great, because we eat out a lot together and we love often, you know, we love the same foods. And so I set off in this process of gathering, well, not gathering, we're just kind of writing a list of foods that we love. And in fact, I said, let's just call it the food we love. And he loved it. But then he took it to the publisher and they said, well, you know, Ottolenghi books always have just one title, you know, simple. So they say, you know, let's see what other name, you know, this might go by. And they looked at my list, our list that we formulated or that we put together. And they said, this is a group of, I don't know, five of them. And they said, ah, this is comfort food. We could call it comfort. And I thought, oh, really? Because for me, I think... A lot of people, the notion of comfort is sort of fatty, greasy, heavy. And I thought, I don't want that. And in fact, my idea of comfort food is hot, zingy, fresh. You know, that's my sort of Asian bent on it. So at the moment, I mean, unfortunately, it's things have been delayed because I've had to take six months off now with the kids at home. So things are a little bit on hold. And in my head, it's still food we love. (laughs) But... I'm having to adjust to this notion that comfort food is slightly different for different people. There are universal cheesy hot things that we all love, fried fritters and that kind of thing. But, you know, comfort food for me would be sort of comfort breakfast would be sort of roti chanai and curry. See, and that is proper comfort food. I don't like white people comfort food. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. And when I got sick a few years ago, people brought me so many lasagnas and I wanted a curry. Yeah, right. I think things have changed. I think, you know, sort of five, ten years ago when I dared to say, you know, when people ask what do you eat for breakfast and I would say, well, curry and even white bread, white toasted bread and curry, you know, I sort of grew up on that. If I say that, it will be a slightly amused reaction or kind of they applaud you as though it's a stunt 
to say you, you're having curry for breakfast. But now I think you're more likely to elicit a kind of envy, like, oh, I just had my cornflakes, wish I could have your curry, you know. So I think things have changed. I think people are just generally much more open to ethnic cuisines and, and just just the myriad ways or myriad things that we call breakfast. And I guess maybe they've traveled more or, you know, having a, a bowl, a steaming hot bowl of pho. Maybe they've been to Vietnam. I mean, the ideal for me when I worked, well, for a long time, many years, I worked in the morning as a psychologist and the and in, and in the evening I'd work in a restaurant, sort of do service in a restaurant. But the ideal for me is to wake up around 10 because that was my because I would work as a pastry chef, I would sort of finish work at midnight, have a beer and then get hopping, you know, finally get into bed at two in the morning. So 10 in the morning was when was my natural time to wake up. And then the Vietnamese restaurants would open at 11. That was just perfect. You know, on my way to seeing my patients, I would have a bowl of pho. That sounds absolutely glorious. We are, all of us, trapped at home to some extent more than we would like to be, I think, at the moment. And for those of us who are parents, that means cooking for children a whole lot. So I wanted to wrap up, Helen, by asking what is the comfort food of your children? You've talked about the comfort food of your childhood, but what do you cook for your kids when you're trying to comfort them and the world feels a little bit scary or it's rainy outside in Cornwall? It's a bit of a nightmare scenario, I have to say, because I have two boys and they have very different tastes. And one goes for the beige food, the cheesy, hot, creamy pasta. And the other one has, I guess, more of my fresh, crunchy rice and vegetables, sort of stir fry kind of thing. So it's a bit of a nightmare. It's not uncommon for me to be cooking four meals. And I really need to get out of it. And it's uh, it's... I wouldn't say it's working, but I'm, I mean, I think initially I was just so delighted that they enjoy food. Yes, if you want that, of course, I'll make it for you. Because part of what I do is I'd love to, to please them with food. And it kind of set a rod for my own back in, in terms of, yeah, cooking what they like. So I'm, trying to now find a way where we can all eat the same meal. I have to say my son's eating habits have become truly terrible during COVID because oh, I feel me, so I feel it. so sad for him that he can't see yes. his friends and go to kinder that I'm constantly yeah. like, let's bake something. Let's have something yeah. sweet. Let's make you feel better. And then it gets to yeah. dinner and he's unsurprisingly not hungry. And it's all my fault. Well, but the ritual of baking together is lovely, isn't it? It is. It is magic, as has been this interview. Helen, thank you so much for being with us on Anonymous Was a Woman. It was a real thrill to chat with you. Thanks so much, Jamila. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed our thoughts this week on comfort, both comfort reading and comfort food. Next week, Jamila and I will be back with Anonymous Was a Woman and we will be talking about war. And don't forget, you can always rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Enjoy your weekend. 